Okay, let us just there. Uh, I just want to pray before we look at God's word. Father, just in our hearts and minds, help us remember that you are our God. Father, thank you that this morning you want to take our hearts, our eyes, our thoughts, and fix them all on yourself. So our lives may be refreshed and that we might know peace. So I ask as we gather around your word that, we, that you would make it a word that we can feed on. I ask that as we just pray together now that we might remember the great promise that if two of us shall be agreed on earth concerning anything, it shall be done by our Father which is in heaven. So feed us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, when Olivia finished school, I wanted to celebrate that she'd finished. And so I arranged just a few days away for the two of us. And I decided, or we chatted and decided we should visit um, the Three Chimneys restaurant. It's a location restaurant on the Isle of Skye. And it was once in one of the top 10 restaurants in the world. Have a look at this uh, picture. This is the road that we traveled on to get to the restaurant. It was an absolutely amazing drive. There was nothing else around for miles. And this next picture, well, this is the view from the restaurant. And that's why it's called a location restaurant, because you have to go to that location. There's nothing else around. And so I thought, okay, let's go and celebrate her leaving school by visiting this restaurant. However, of course, I made there to be a condition. The condition was we would climb one of the mountains before our meal. There we go, that's the one we climbed. I took this picture. And Livy, before we arrived, was quite keen, obviously, at first. You can see her at the bottom, she looks quite happy. And then she saw our guide get the ropes out and he tied us all together. And for some reason, I'm not quite sure why, she became rather nervous. And yet, here's a picture of us at the top and we did make it and we had um, sandwiches at the top and it was an amazing time. And it wasn't until afterwards that she told me that she was actually really scared going up. And she told me one of the reasons she kept going was she knew I would tell her just to get on with it and she had no choice. (laughs) That she had to just suck it up and get on. But I was thinking about this and I was thinking actually I, I don't know if that's the real reason. I think that's the reason she tells me. Because I was hoping that She saw this mountain, she'd never done anything like this before, and I was hoping that the reason she got up there was she trusted me. Yes, we were attached by a rope, and yes, her mother didn't know what we were doing, but I like to tell myself that she had confidence in me, that I would not put her in any real danger. And as we look today at Psalm 27, we see it as a psalm of confidence, a psalm of trust. Now I know for some of us, when we say trust and confidence, a lot of questions might emerge. How do I have confidence? How do I have trust? 
We might think, yes, we read in the scriptures that we're supposed to have trust and confidence. We go to church and we sing these songs about trust and confidence and then this preacher person gets up and he tells us to have trust and confidence. But how do we have that? And in trying to answer the question of how, I think this psalm is really useful. So let's look at Psalm 27. And the words as we look at it will come up on the screen. And I must apologize. We're not going to cover every part of the psalm. The psalm is so rich. I, I, I feel I could feast and look at this psalm for the rest of my life. And don't worry, <laughs> I've got a set amount of time. But no matter what I do with it today, I'm not going to do it justice. All we're going to do is like, have a wee taste of the huge banquet that this psalm is. But let's start at verse 1. Good place to start, possibly. Verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, when I read the psalm, I I get stuck just there. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? And it makes me go, God. We all have our fears, don't we? Our anxieties. And different people, they have different fears and different anxieties at different times. And here in Psalm 27, David is faced and struggling with his own fears. But I absolutely love how David makes such bold statements, strong declarations in verse 1. Declarations about who God is. He says, God is my light. He is my stronghold. He is my salvation. And he's making these strong declarations about God's character, about God's role in his life. But then he goes on and he has equally strong language to describe his enemies. Verses 2 and 3. When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. I hope you catch that. That he's saying his enemies are evil men. That they advance against him. That they want to devour his flesh, to tear him to pieces. And that they're like an army that want to besiege him, to go to war against him. And for David, the author of this psalm, life was not easy. Actually, when you stop and think about his life, his life was quite horrific at times. David had literal enemies with real weapons. People who were literally trying to kill him. I remember as a student, every so often, um, I would tune in to the TV and on the TV would be don't judge me, the Jerry Springer show. And it's a kind of, if you don't know about it, you've saved yourself. It was a a tasteless talk show that had guests whose family lives were completely messed up. And he would interview a guest and then introduce a new guest and they would confront their original guests and then they would argue and Jerry would then bring in more guests and some sort of fight would break out. If you haven't seen Jerry Springer, Well, it's a bit like the Jeremy Kyle show, but on speed. I don't know if you've seen Jeremy Kyle either. You maybe live such holy lives. But if these shows had been around at the time of David, I reckon David would have been on Jerry Springer. 
for his family life was such a train wreck. There was this one time in David's life, and it was a time of war, and David, he sends his generals off to fight, and David should have gone, but he decides he's king, so he stays back in Jerusalem. He's on the rooftop, and he sees a a beautiful woman bathing, so he sends for her. And as king, he just sends for her, and she comes, and he sleeps with her. The problem is, she's married. She's married to a guy called Uriah. And Uriah is one of David's generals. Uriah is off fighting David's battle. And David sleeps with Uriah's wife. He gets her pregnant. And then he goes into cover-up mode and he sends a note and he says he wants Uriah, Uriah to go where the fighting is most fierce. So Uriah is killed. What a mess he makes. We also have the death of David's son. And then... Another of David's sons rapes David's daughter. I I can't even get my head around how messed up that family is. And then David's got this other son, Absalom, and he leads a rebellion against King David. And that rebellion gets David removed from the throne. And some people believe that this Psalm, Psalm 27, is written after the battle where David reclaims his throne from his son. However, in that battle for his throne, his son has been killed. And David's heart is is torn apart. Because yes, the throne is now his again. Order in the kingdom has been reestablished. And yet, his son, by his command, has died. And it's in this space, amidst all this chaos, of all this brokenness, of all this carnage, that David says in verse 3, Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war breaks out against me, even then I will be confident. Did you get that really? That even though his life is absolute wreck, he will be confident. And this word confidence is used again in verse 13. It says, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I really like the the way the King James Version puts it. It says, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You see, David feels that his fears and anxieties are making him faint. He feels that his fears and anxieties and his worries are kind of knocking him off balance, that they're sweeping him off his feet. And fear does that. It makes our hearts tremble. It makes our mouths go dry. They can be so great, they give us an ulcer, give us all kind of muscular pains, lead to heart attack. And despite all of this, David is saying, that he is confident. And I just go, how? How can David be confident? Back to verse 1. The Lord. The Lord. You see, it's not a confidence in himself, in his ability to cope, or that he has just learned to bear with the situation. It is a confidence in the Lord. And maybe you notice again, the word Lord is in capital letters. 
You know, the last time I preached, I said the capital letters are used for Yahweh, for Jehovah. And they're spelling out a, a certain characteristic of the Lord that he is the all-sufficient one. And he's saying, I have confidence in the unchanging one. A confidence in something that never moves, that never changes, it, a rock that is always the same. And he's saying, my Lord, my salvation, it's a confidence in his Lord, in his self-sufficient, self, uh, self-sufficient, unchanging Lord. It's not some random, impersonal God. It's his Lord. And maybe you know what it is to be afraid of something, to be apprehensive, to be worried, to be agitated. But maybe you also know what it is just then to get alone with God, to open your Bible, and you know that just in that moment of quietness, that he is your Lord. And that's all. And as you realize that he is your Lord, immediately the whole situation takes on a new perspective and you enter into a new dimension. You know, in the last few weeks, I've set an alarm on my phone to ring at 9 a.m., midday, 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. And I've named the alarm, Jesus is Lord. And when it goes off, that's my thought. I, I don't then go, oh, into deep prayer, etc. I just go, oh, yeah, Jesus is actually Lord. Jesus is my Lord. And then I move on. But it's amazing because no matter what I am doing, no matter what I'm involved in, I stop. And it's like, oh, he is in control. Jesus is my Lord. Not just in control in a general, he is sovereign sort of way, but he's in control in an intimate, personal, loving way. Jesus is Lord at 9 a.m., at midday, at 3 p.m., at 6 p.m., and also at 9 p.m., but I'm often watching a movie and I don't necessarily want to be disturbed. But he is Lord, and it's such a good reminder and you know, it's not as if a Bible verse is coming down from heaven. It's not as if I'm being visited by a heavenly being or I'm having some great, wonderful experience. I'm just being reminded that Jesus is Lord. I'm just simply stopping and going, Jesus is Lord. I'm entering into his presence and my heart is made aware that he is Lord, it's that simple. That he is self-sufficient, self-existent, totally unchanging, totally sovereign, totally in control, and that he's my Lord. What a difference that makes. And yes, I've still at 9.01 got to go out. Still got to face whatever I was facing. But what a difference that makes in my life simply because Jesus is Lord. There's a confidence in the Lord. 
But how, Peter, how does David move from where he is to from fear to confidence? Well, he tells us his secret in verse four. He says, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And the first thing I see in verse four is there is a consistency in, in David's life. The beginning of verse four, one thing I ask from the Lord, one thing only do I seek. So David's got all this mess going on in his life. His family is a train wreck. His son has just been killed by his command. He's back on the throne. Life's going to move on, but he's grieved. And there's this juxtaposition that, yes, things have been reestablished as they ought to be, yet his life, his son is dead. And he says, despite this, The only thing I need, the only thing I want, the only thing I ask from you, Lord, is just just one thing. One thing. You know, in preparing for today, I stumbled across an article written by a poet called Annie Dillard, and she writes this interesting little essay on life called Living Like Weasels. And she wrote it after observing a weasel in the wild. I think there's a picture of a weasel there. They look kind of cute, maybe. And this is what she writes. A weasel is wild. Who knows what they think? They're just obedient to instinct. They bite its prey at the neck there, either splitting the jugular vein at the throat or crunching, sorry, a bit graphic, crunching the brain at the base of the skill. And he does not let go. And I kept on reading about weasels, I got kind of sidetracked. And once, um, and I was reading, and it was about a nature lover, and he got bitten by a weasel. He had bitten into his hand, and he refused just to kill the weasel to make it let go. He didn't want to kill the animal. And he could not pry this tiny little animal off. So what he had to do, he walked down to a river, and he kind of ducked the river, the river, the weasel into the river, and dangled it there in the river until it needed to let go. It was like soaking that annoying label off the jar that you're trying to clean off. Stubborn weasel, get off. And eventually that's how it got off. It was locked in. Look at this uh, picture that I found. And I really did check. It's not photoshopped. There's a video of it as well. The weasel has attacked this bird. And, uh, and it, it's bitten at the back of its neck and it won't let go. And with this picture, I was reading about a, a man who shot an eagle out of the sky, out of the sky. And when he went and he examined the eagle, he found the dry skull of a weasel fixed by its jaws to the throat of the eagle. And the belief was that the eagle had pounced on the weasel, and the weasel had turned round as its instinct and bit the eagle, and then had taken off, and it had refused to let go, and it just stayed there until it died. And I was thinking, imagine walking out and you're seeing this eagle flying around and it's got a kind of fur a collar on of this uh, weasel thing. Anyway, I was thinking about the way the weasel locks its jaws on what it wants and holds on for dear life. And particularly on the way 
That one weasel grasped the eagle's neck and would not let go. And this poet, poet concludes her kind of article. She says, I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go. To dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Did you get that? It's quite amazing. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. So what is your one necessity? What is the one thing, above all things, that you most desire? What is the one thing that weasel-like you grasp with all your might and you dangle from it wherever it takes you? What is that one thing, above all other things, that you most want to live for? And for David, he describes this one thing in, with three verbs. And verbs, I'm sure you all know, are words that describe an action. I actually had to look this up. They're a doing word. So David's one thing involves doing three things. The first one, it's still in verse 4, is the word dwell. One thing I ask of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to dwell in the house of the Lord? Well, you might be asking, Pete, aren't we always kind of dwelling in his house, in his presence? Isn't one of the defining characteristics of God his omnipresence, that he is present everywhere? And yes, God is present, always present, and yes, we're in the entirety of God's presence all the time. And the presence of the living God is in this room, in the fullness of that presence now. What I mean by the fullness of that presence is it's not as though God has an epicenter. And as he moves away from that epicenter, he grows weaker. But rather, the presence of God is as powerful and as massive in the furthest reaches of the universe as it is in this room right here and now. That's his omnipresence. And I just think about the ramifications of that omnipresence. It's quite stunning, really. Because, because God is omnipresent in all his fullness of his presence, nothing ever surprises him. And God is also never panicked. I can't imagine oh, God being surprised and panicked by a situation. I never saw you there. Or I didn't expect that. You know, he never has to kind of huddle up with the Trinity and go, what are we going to do? I never expected that to happen. He is everywhere. And for us, that means if we come into this place this morning or wherever you are, and we come and it's a difficult place and time in our life, the fact that God is omnipresent means you've not been forgotten. You've not been abandoned. Your situation does not surprise or panic him. He's, you've not been betrayed by him. He is everywhere in all his fullness here now. So David in this 
verse is not talking about the omnipresence of God. Also, to dwell in his presence, he's not talking about a physical spot. He's not saying, I really need to get to temple. I need to get to church. What I really need is an hour or and a half, or maybe this morning, two hours of church. That's not what he's saying. He said, I need to get with God. I need to get with God in a way that all of this stuff just melts away. David is not pleading for a church service. He's not pleading for an awareness of the omnipresence of God, but he's asking for help. He's saying, I need to know you intimately. The one thing I need, it's not my son back. It's not the kingdom put back together. It's you. It's you, my Lord. You are the solution to everything that I'm afraid of. What he's actually asking for can be found in the second verb. He says, I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. We all know what it means to gaze on something beautiful. You know, we might have encountered it in a song or a painting, a movie or another person. We might go, God, they're beautiful. Wasn't that piece of art just beautiful? Wasn't that sunset beautiful? Wasn't that Dal, beautiful. And when we see something beautiful, we kind of stop. We, we savor that moment. We fill our minds with it. We pause. We savor it. We taste it. We rest in it. You know, to be honest, I think this picture of our dog kind of maybe sums it up. Look, it's looking at Olivia, just gazing and looking at the chips just gazing, totally captivated, total longing. Back to the weasel, it's just fixated, fix, fixated, just one thing. And we're gazing at it because it's all we want. And with God, it means to gaze at Him, not because it gives us something but simply because of who he is. And that's where the dog picture fails because the dog wants something. But David is saying we should gaze on his beauty, on his face simply because he is beautiful. Not because he's gonna provide a way out, not because he's gonna fix the kingdom, not because my son is gonna be raised. No, not because he's a means to an end, no, we gaze on him simply because he is the end. That's it. Sometimes we, you might have heard people say, what's your top 10 things you want in life? And you list them. But here David is saying there is no list. He is the beginning and the end. He is the alpha and the omega. There is no list, it's only him. And we gaze on him for him, no other reason. And thirdly, this is the third verb we're looking at. He doesn't just say, I want to gaze on your beauty, but David also says, to seek him, to seek him. And this word seek, it's a specific Hebrew word, and it's a 
bakosh. And it's used three times in this psalm. And I mention it because we could miss the meaning. It doesn't mean just to look for, like I look for my wallet because I've lost it again. It means, and yes, looking is part of the meaning. It has a note of to inquire, to get guidance, to get counsel. So what he is saying is, when I come to you, Lord, I'm trying to find you, but I'm also trying to find out what your will is for my life, for you to guide me. And he's saying, I want to obey your will. And this is really important. For these two elements of gazing and seeking, they need to come together. For if all we do is seek to do his will, to obey him, to find out what he teaches and obey it day in, day out, if that's all we do, without gazing on his beauty, it will all be legalism, Phariseeism, a bit like slavery. It's just up here in our heads, us doing lots of oughts and shoulds. But on the other hand, if we just try to gaze on his beauty, let's just have this great experience. Just raise our hands in worship. What a wonderful feeling. But we don't want to find out what his will is and obey him. Well, that's not right either. That's just emotion. And when the emotion goes, we stop gazing because there's no foundation. And we need to have all these three verbs together to dwell, to gaze, to seek. And these are the things that make up David's one thing. You see, David is saying, God, if you're my one thing, if you're the only thing I require, if you're the one thing I gaze on, if I gaze on your beauty, if I seek you, inquire of what you want, then I'm fearless. Because he's saying, anything but God and his will is subject to the changeability of time and life. Anything but God and his will is vulnerable. Because nothing can take God away from you. Nothing can take that away. And so now we can be fearless. But anything else we set our heart upon can be taken away from us. When there's a threat to that thing our heart is gazing at, then we're afraid we will lose it and we go to pieces. You see, if there's one thing that's non-negotiable in your life, if that one thing you really want, that one thing you think you really need, if that one thing is God, then you're absolutely safe. There was an English missionary named Alan Gardner. And in 1851, he was on his way to South America to start a new mission. And he was shipwrecked on a very remote island. And he and his companions tried their best to stay alive until somebody came to find them. But nobody did. Finally, he died far away from everybody. Far away from his loved ones. 
far away from his family, dying of thirst, dying of hunger, alone. And when they discovered his body, they found right next to his body was his quiet time book, his journal. And they opened it up and they saw on the very last page he had written out Psalm 34 verse 10. And this is what it says. The young lions do not lack and suffer hunger. But they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. I'll say it again. The young lions do not uh, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. And right underneath that were penned the words, his last words. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Why wasn't he mad at his circumstances? Why wasn't he angry? Why wasn't he scared? Why wasn't he fearful? Because he had one thing. And there was nothing to be afraid of. Because he had one thing. Maybe the the worship team could come back up. What is your one necessity in life? What is the one thing above all things that you most desire? What is the one thing that weasel-like you, you want to grasp with all your might? What is the one thing you're living for? St. Augustine said often, if we look at our fears and anxieties, we can tell what the one thing is. What are the things you're afraid of? Your career, your family, your finances. Augustine said that these can all be really good things. And often what happens is the good thing that it's okay to have in our life. We become so caught up with keeping it that it becomes the one thing. But what is your one thing? For the psalmist, the one thing was the person of God. And despite all that was going on, in his life, he could say, I'm, I'm not afraid. And when he was afraid, he would stop and he would say, but you are my Lord. And therefore, I can be confident in you. Because everything else was secondary. There wasn't even a list. He was the beginning and the end. He is all that mattered. I think about times when I've gone to the Colosseum in Rome and we've stood by the cross that has been placed there. And it's to remember the Christians who died. How they faced death. I think of the books I read when I was growing up about the 
the Christians in communist Russia who were locked up year after year and faced beatings after beatings and yet they were unafraid because God was their one thing. This morning, what is your one thing? Do you need to stop and dwell and gaze and seek the Lord? As we worship, Anna's going to lead us in some worship. And as we are not allowed to sing, take the time to listen to the words and to think about what your one thing is. Think about what your fears are and if they are actually your thing and if you need to stop and dwell and gaze and seek.